Welcome back to Canna Week, brought to you by New Frontier Data, where we deliver the week's top headlines in cannabis and hear experts weigh in on the impacts these stories are having on the industry. I'm your host, Heather Wickline. Before we get started, if you are loving this podcast, please be sure to like, subscribe, and leave us a five-star review. All right, today we're going to be taking a deeper dive into the CAOA. So we are thrilled to have our expert on. Um, He is the Director of Policy at the Liaison Group joining us today. Please welcome Mr. David Mangone. Hi, Heather. Thank you so much for uh, having me on. Um, As you said, I'm David Mangone, Director of Policy at the Liaison Group on Capitol Hill. um, We are a federal cannabis lobbying firm um, representing trade associations like the National Cannabis Roundtable, as well as the California Cannabis Industry Association uh, and some other uh, private clients. So um, I've been steeped in cannabis policy um, for about the last six years now, um, first at Americans for Safe Access uh, and now at the Liaison Group um, working on the industry side. So happy to be here. Very happy to have you. Um, and as always, I am happy to welcome back Chief Knowledge Officer at New Frontier Data, Mr. John Kagia. Welcome back. Yeah, thanks very much, Heather. Delighted to be back. Thank you. So, David, I know you just mentioned that you've been in the industry for about six years. What were you doing before that? What 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 made you come into cannabis? Sure. So, um, before that, I was working on Capitol Hill uh, for a senior. Uh, Democratic member of the House Ways and Means Committee. Um, He had retired uh, with the change of the administration when President Trump came into office. Um, So was looking for for new career opportunities, um, saw something in cannabis, uh, seemed really interesting just based on the portfolio I had covered on the Hill, Um, had covered some veterans issues, um, particularly with Korean War, which is a little bit older of the demographic than you typically um, see uh, entering into the cannabis space, but it also covered a lot of criminal justice issues as well. Um, So saw an opportunity in cannabis, thought it was a really uh, unique intersection of uh, the issues I've been working on um, and and decided to give it a go. And uh, six years later, which is is a million years in the cannabis industry, uh, here I am. Well, that makes John, what, a million and one? (laughs) Because you've been in it for eight. (laughs) It's crazy. I was actually, David, I remember when you joined the liaison group and Safari introduced you, the first time she introduced you is a, is a new edition. And I can't believe that was six years ago. It both feels like it was yesterday and a lifetime ago. That's right. Um, you know, we'll take out the pandemic uh, as a, uh, a time loop. And so maybe it's a little bit shorter. Yeah. But, um, you know, c- certainly uh, the industry um, on the state level has evolved, uh, you know, incredibly rapidly over over that, that time period. Um, but I think we've seen a lot of um, productive movements on the federal level as well, you know, part of which I think we'll talk about today with the, the CAOA. Absolutely. All right, let, let's dive right in. Uh, marijuana Moment reported Senate bill to federally legalize marijuana and promote social equity finally filed by Schumer, Booker, and Wyden. So the long-awaited Cannabis Administration and Opportunity Act has finally been filed in the Senate. So some key changes since the initial introduction include increasing the allowable THC limit in hemp, the inclusion of a mandate to establish national impairment standards, and revised tax policies, which could benefit smaller businesses. So David, how does this bill compare to the original draft? And do you think the changes that have been made are going to make it more appealing uh, piece of legislation for the industry? 
Yeah, and before I get into the specific changes, I want to um, focus on a keyword of the headline you just read from Marijuana Moment, and that is finally. Um, you know, this bill has been a very long time coming. The The first conversation um, that the sponsors had about this bill uh, was in February of 2021. Um, they had a listening session with some stakeholders, uh, some some industry advocates, some, some criminal justice advocates, uh, and they really sort of outlaid their, their plan for a, um, you know, a larger comprehensive cannabis bill. Um, we saw the discussion draft follow uh, in June of that year. Um, and then it, you know, here we are, you know, over a year later um, with the final bill introduced. Um, and, you know, there are a lot of substantive changes that occurred over that last year between this discussion draft and this draft. Um, at least from a page number standpoint, the bill added about 150 pages worth of legislative content. Um, not all of that is, is necessarily um, deep substance. Some of it uh, builds out on what type of studies should happen, um, sets up some funding levels. Uh, but there are a number of changes that the authors made to this bill from, from stakeholder feedback. Uh, I, I believe the office has said that they got over 15,000 comments um, on their draft bill, uh, you know, of varying um, depth and detail, you know, some certainly just, you know, single sentence um, thoughts about particular provisions um, or some very you know, detailed complex analyses uh, in terms of tax structure, in terms of um, permitting within the FDA. Uh, so a couple of changes that I wanted to, to highlight, which made me a discussion draft and the current draft is they build out a 22-member advisory commission um, within the FDA. It's called the Cannabis Products Advisory Commission. And I think this is an area where we're going to see perhaps the biggest impact on existing state programs. What this commission is tasked with doing is setting um, limitations on potency, on packaging, on dosing, on serving sizes. So everything that you are thinking about with the typical medical industry on the state level is something that would now fall within the purview uh, of this FDA body. Um, so on that commission, they do um, reserve some spots for some industry uh, representatives, um, both from the social equity community and then the industry at large. I'm reserving spots for cultivators, processors, wholesalers, and retailers. Um, but this commission, I think, really will be uh, acting as a sub-agency within the FDA when it comes to cannabis products. I think we have an analogous agency with uh, the Center for Tobacco Products um, that's also housed within the FDA. Um, certainly that um, you know, sort of subset and subdivision is responsible for some of the education campaigns we see um, for you know the with the Truth Initiative uh, and looking at, at some of the advertising practices that the tobacco industry engages in. Um, so I think that will be a very important body uh, whenever it does get set up in the FDA. Um, other changes, as you mentioned, there is a definitional change for, for hemp, increasing the total dry weight of THC um, from 0.3% to 0.7% uh, rather uh, total THC content. Um, this is as a result of uh, what we've seen since the farm bill in 2018 with a real proliferation of synthetic cannabinoids and hemp-derived intoxinating cannabinoids, um, Delta-8, uh, Delta-10, you know, the, the, the list goes on and on as we discover um, new ones each day. But there has been a growing concern both from the hemp industry and the cannabis industry that there are operators uh, that are out there sort of subverting the intent of the original farm bill by producing intoxicating products um, intended for human consumption um, without necessarily having the same regulatory safeguards as you see for state legal cannabis. Um, other changes, uh, 
again, there is a highway safety focus in this bill. Um, they certainly outlined it in the discussion draft, uh, but you see you know, three really new areas where there is a lot more legislative language um, than what we saw last summer. Um, the first is creating funding levels for cannabis impaired driving research. Um, the second is directing the Department of Transportation uh, to develop an education program, uh, basically don't, don't drive a high program. You know, we've seen this, um, you know, similarly with alcohol uh, in terms of education campaigns that they've come up. And I think the last most mo notable for highway safety is the Department of Transportation is required to develop a national impairment standard under this bill within three years of upon passage. Um, of course, where we sit right now is I think the, the ongoing uh, concern with developing a national impairment standard is the lack of research available um, and the lack of methodology to develop something similar to the 0.08 standard we use with alcohol. Uh, there is provisions in, in the new draft of the new bill that allow for um, allow for sort of an exception to this three-year time window. It basically says that if the secretary of the Department of Transportation um, can't gather sufficient research or there isn't sufficient research, um, they have a two-year check-in period after that um, every two years to tell Congress why um, they have not yet developed a standard or at least what the state of research is. Um, pause there just for a second, uh, but you know, I, I think when we look at the, the criminal justice provisions of this bill, which I think is the real focus that um, Senator Booker and Senator Schumer originally introduced this bill, they are largely the same from what we saw in the original discussion draft. Um, I, I think you know, one exception is when they are looking in terms of facilitating um, social equity applicants entering into the space. Um, the revised bill does create a lending program within the SBA. Uh, it is a 10-year pilot program, um, which would allow the Small Business Administration to make direct loans uh, to cannabis businesses and to their intermediaries. Um, that part is new, um, and it does focus more on, on the access to capital issues uh, that we did not see in the first bill. But as far as the expungement language and the um, justice reform language, that is all um, very much the same. There are some small technical fixes, um, but it's very much still uh, the spirit of the bill. So I will uh, I will stop there for for some. Well, no, that questions. was that was thorough. Um, John, what did he miss? I know that your wheels are turning. <laughs> no, baby, that that was brilliant. Um, and maybe you know, maybe I'll approach it from a, from a slightly different lens, which is less about. Uh, what's in the bill and, and some of the potential implications based on uh, the, the really elegant synopsis that David has given. Um, so first is this idea of finally, and David, I love that you keyed on on that piece, because this is potentially going to be a double-edged sword for the industry about, you know, a cautionary tale on being careful what you wish for. Um, you know, the, the yes, it is still too early to talk about whether this thing is going to pass or not. And David, I love your take on that. But, but now we have something on the table that is going to serve as a framework for the conversation around federal policy for cannabis. And this is going to have huge implications for uh, the state businesses, uh, or the, the state level markets as we know them. The, the uh, governance or, or the creation of, a, of an FDA body to govern uh, cannabis products 
uh, one which I'm sure is going to draw a lot of lessons from our uh, long history with alcohol and tobacco and is going to be heavily influenced by both of those uh, uh, perspectives. Two, that is going to be looking at uh, ways of, of uh, normalizing all of the policies that have been developed at the state level. So they'll be looking at what how things are being, done, are being done currently at the state level. And three, one which is likely going to still be heavily influenced by stakeholders who um, whose priority is going to be around minimizing harm will likely mean that we're going to start seeing federal regulations that put far more constraints and constrictions on uh, cannabis consumer products than we've seen at the state level. Uh, the idea of policy li uh, potency limits being a central anchor part of the mission of this, uh, of this group, and that's been a long running debate uh, at the state level, but broadly speaking, most states have said, you know, if you can make them and you can sell them, uh, then, then uh, uh, so be it. So you may have potency caps of, um, in terms of bounding, for example, with edibles, you know, a, a single dose is 10 milligrams. Um, uh, but, but the idea of things like, you know, uh, potentially caps on how potent uh, concentrates uh, might be, how potent uh, a flower can be, could obviously potentially be uh, immensely disruptive to uh, to state level markets things like labeling you know every time we've seen a state level market changes regulations around product labeling uh, operators have had to shell out a ton of money to retool their manufacturing process retool their packaging processes um, to be in compliance with the new state regulations and um, you know it'll be interesting to see what the feds come out as as the basic minimum requirements uh, that, that the market's going to have to have to go into to retool around uh, those are going to be relatively short term issues, uh, but at a time that folks are capital constrained, um, you know, the, the, I'm sure there's a lot of um, small and mid-sized operators who aren't particularly interested or excited about um, having to make sweeping changes to the branding packaging um, at a critical time of building brand identity in this marketplace. And, um, and I would I would add it's not just on, on the packaging front, but we'll see additional costs. You know, within this new um, development of CAOA, there's also a language about, you know, the Occupational Safety and Health Act. So having your facility become OSHA compliant um, is going to be incredibly cost intensive if you're not already, you know, you know OSHA is not going to let businesses slide um, with you know faulty fire extinguishers, um, you know any workplace safety issues that come up in the traditional sense that they inspect, um, if they are now also going to be in the purview of looking at cannabis businesses, you know certainly many states have put forth you know labor safety standards and worker safety standards within their regulations, um, but complying with you know OSHA is another level of expense for a lot of these businesses, and, and you know as John mentioned, it may be a little bit of careful what you wish for when you're going to be so. Um, closely watched and closely regulated by the federal government um, may find that the you know, workflow that you have been operating in as a state licensed and authorized business um, may abruptly change. And then maybe, and I love that point, and maybe, so maybe one just kind of final quick thought, because uh, there's so much here to unpack, but uh, it's around the social justice piece. So the federal government um, is clearly going to take a proactive approach if this bill were to become law. Uh, in in records of expungement or in prison re uh, release and, and records of expungement for nonviolent offenders. There's going to be quite a lot of work done around that for federal level offenders. However, there's not going to be a great deal of power that the state, the feds are going to have on, on requiring states to do the same thing. 
So this is one of the areas where I think there's a possibility we'll end up seeing a left-right divide where um, more liberal jurisdictions might be might move a little more quickly in, in uh, both their uh, legalization initiatives as well as their um, uh, 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 prohibition restructuring to address prisoner release records expungement. Um, but we've already begun to see some frothing uh, and, and some disquiet from more conservative lawmakers that you know these people broke the law while it was still the law, and um, that 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 shouldn't be something that gets erased. Um, and so you know the the even as the federal government may um, uh, may have some impact by addressing this at the federal level, um, it's going to be interesting to see how effective uh, the, the the feds are in trying to persuade uh, reluctant states to adopt similar po policies at the state level, which is where the bulk of these offenses are taking place. Yeah, and the, it, it is structured under this bill as a grant program, um, both through something called the Community Reinvestment Grant Program, as well as the Equitable Licensing Grant Program. Uh, and, and, you know, this is the Department of Justice saying we're going to make money available for states that have made efforts to end some of the harms of the war on drugs, including expungement, but also including reentry services, job training, um, you know, making sure that uh, there are low barriers to entry for, for new business applicants. But those grants are, are just grants. You know, they are not a mandate. They're not a directive. Um, if there is a state that is going to be resistant to, um, you know, changing their cannabis laws, I don't think this is going to operate in the same way uh, that, you know, the mandatory, mandatory age of 21 for alcohol transpired. Um, that is, is not actually a national age. It's incentivized through highway safety funding. Of course, it has become a national age because every state did not want to miss out on such a significant appropriation with their highway safety. Um, but I'm not sure if that cannabis appropriation, at least for the first few years, will be significant enough to offset some conservative states uh, in their interest to keep cannabis federally illegal. And I think that's precisely the point. There's just not going to be enough cap capital in the pool, I think, to... to, to... Um, offset what continues to be pretty deeply rooted resistance in some of these jurisdictions. Yeah. Well, David, from um, like the regulatory perspective, what sort of impact would CIOA have on the current regulatory frameworks in uh, various states? So one, I think, very uh, welcome change from the original draft to the final bill is there is going to be a transition period um, as this FDA body gets um, built up and gets its members uh, set and they start making um, rules through the rulemaking process. Um, the, the transition period is going to allow existing state programs, um, particularly when it comes to edibles, uh, to maintain uh, the way they are right now. There's not going to be an abrupt halt um, on the passage of the CAOA. Um, and I think this transition period is critical to make sure that the products that are currently on the marketplace um, aren't uh, completely wiped out by a heavy handed uh, regulation from the FDA. Uh, you know, that was something that was missing from the original bill, um, that transition period. There was no uh, indication that there was going to be, um, you know, any sort of on-ramp for the existing industry to adapt to federal regulations. Uh, so I think that is welcome. Where I, I see a problem um, already brewing with the way the CAOA um, presents regulation is it still doesn't clearly define a distinction between medical cannabis and adult use cannabis. Uh, as far as the federal government is concerned right now, all cannabis is illegal. Um, what we've seen on the state level though is a 
you know, difference of opinion and program uh, in terms of what conditions qualify under medical programs uh, if it is a medical only program, and then within states, you know, the different paradigms of adult use and, and medical use. Um, this is something that this bill doesn't really, I think, effectively contemplate that there are these um, two tracks uh, of cannabis regulation um, in states around the country. You know, even in, um, I, I think, the most robust adult use markets um, like California, there's still a, a number of medical regulations, um, medical tax exemptions, um, you know, benefits to being a medical producer only that don't exist when you are um, serving both the adult use and the medical industry. So the lack, I think, of intention with the differentiation between adult use and medical cannabis in the CAOA, I think is going to be a regulatory headache. You know, certainly they direct the FDA, the TTB, and a number of other agencies to develop regulations consistent with the CAOA. Um, I think that is going to be an area where these regulations really show um, if a federal oversight of, of both medical and adult medical and adult use cannabis is workable by the federal government. John, anything to add to that? And David is crushing it. I'm literally just slipstreaming in, in, in behind him. Um, and, and actually, maybe a question for you, David. One, one thing that still feels a little bit unresolved to me is this idea of interstate commerce, which is obviously something that there's a lot of interest in uh, in the excess producer states. Um, how do you think that plays out under a CAOE framework? Is it, um, uh, yeah, do, do you think that we are you know, on the cusp of, assuming this goes through, on the cusp of finally being able to transport cannabis across uh, consensual markets? So I, I think we we get probably 80% of the way there with CAOA. Um, there's nothing in CAOA that says um, there's going to be a ban on interstate commerce or that it's going to be delayed. Uh, but you still have to get the states to cooperate. Um, certainly producer states, you know, California, Oregon, uh, Washington will be very eager to enter into a compact where they can export cannabis. Um, there's a bill in New Jersey right now uh, being led by the Senate president that is um, setting up a sort of tri-state area uh, cannabis compact with New York, um, Connecticut. But you're going to have a lot of states, particularly, um, you know, in the Midwest and, and likely on the East Coast, who are going to be very resistant to letting cannabis from other states come into their borders. They, you know, were sold these programs um, saying that there'd be good tax revenue for the state, there'd be good job creation for the state, and allowing, you know, a external marketplace to come in and sort of pull out the rug from under some of these you know, less established marketplaces. Um, I think there's going to be some resistance in these state houses uh, and these governor's offices. Um, you know, and that's not even you know talking about how brands have just you know Absolutely. established themselves. You know, East Coast brands, West Coast brands. Um, you know, certainly in in New York right now, um, it is it is relatively easy to find a. Uh, unlicensed vendors saying that they have, you know, the finest California product. Um, I think that will certainly change once the state's marketplace is fully operational. But, you know, there's also a provision within New York's um, legislation that says that they're going to pro provide a preference to New York producers, New York retailers, um, and New York residents within the program. So um, I, I don't think this is an area that the CAOA you know, fully contemplates the, the extent of. I think it permits it on its, on its face, but I think there's a lot of other issues at the state level that need to be resolved before we see an open market place across state lines um, for, for cannabis products. 
I totally agree with that. And I think there's a lot more excitement about the people who want to get it out of their state than the people who, who want to get it in. Um, so. Yeah. I mean, John, we had Graham from Glass House on our podcast recently. And, you know, when you asked him, I mean, he's crushing it in California. You asked him, are you going to expand into other markets? And he was like, no. Once it federally legalizes, the best cannabis in the country can get shipped everywhere. So it seems like that's uh, on his mind, like you said, trying to get it out. Um, well, so... David, generally speaking, do you think cannabis can be regulated like alcohol or tobacco? So I know you mentioned it earlier. Yeah, I, I think there's some some lessons um, learned that we can take from both industries. I mean, you know, the CAOA bill, I think, borrows on a lot of the anti-competitiveness um, language, you know, the, the Tide House language that we see in three-tier alcohol distribution um, appears in the CAOA uh, bill in terms of, you know, limiting, um, you know, or rather the, the prevention of limiting shelf space for any particular retailer. Um, so that is a direct parallel that you see in the CAOA. Um, certainly how the tax structure is set up in CAOA um, borrows a lot from alcohol and tobacco as well. Um, you are giving the Treasury Department um, sort of full discretion to, to enforce over um, tax permitting and tax stamping. Uh, and it's a, a concept that we see very much when um, you look at whether it's uh, you know, grain alcohol um, by the barrel or you know, individual bottles. Um, it's something that TTB has, has significant oversight for. I, I think where we you know, meet a problem with pulling from regulations from alcohol and tobacco um, is, is the problem I addressed uh, a few minutes earlier is the medical versus adult use dichotomy. Um, there is really no um, medical use for, for cigarettes or, or tobacco. Um, and, and certainly in the modern, um, you know, pharmacy lexicon, there's no use for, for alcohol um, that's commercially available as well. You know, certainly there's, there's rubbing alcohol and, um, you know, pure alcohol that's used for some disinfectants, but uh, it, there's not really the same sort of crossover um, that you have with, with the cannabis market where in many places being marketed as a therapeutic um, and then in many other places being marketed as a, as a recreational substance. So I, I think while there are areas um, when it comes to, to tax structures, when it comes to packaging and labeling um, in terms of, you know, the labels appeal to, to children or, or lack thereof, there, there are parallels. But when you get into the issue of what does this product actually do for the user, um, that's where I think we don't have a great existing model, um, either with alcohol or tobacco products. John, what are your thoughts on that? So foundationally, there's, I think, some reasons why we would be a little bit concerned about trying to copy and paste regulations either from tobacco or from alcohol. So um, currently, and I don't think I'm out of turn in saying this, tobacco is really the only consumer product which is inherently designed to kill its consumers. Like it's the only uh, regulated product that we still have in a society that um, uh, the, all, the science has converged around the idea that there's no... Uh, health benefits to its use, and its use is almost guaranteed to kill you, um, which I think stands in sharp contrast to cannabis, where the, the science has been profoundly affirmative to its, its health and, uh, and potential wellness benefits. Two, on the alcohol side, um, the, the, the 
science may have been uh, kind of at least the colloquial science for a long time has been you know the Mediterraneans consume a glass of wine and that's why they're so healthy for for a very long uh, for, for for millennia that's the story we've been hearing but uh, I was really struck by a, a paper that was put out by the Lancet uh, I guess it was in 2019 uh, which was a global assessment of the health uh, impact of cannabis on our global society. And there's a, there's a line at the conclusion of that report that read, um, the, the only safe amount of alcohol to consume is none. Uh, because in essence, there are no redeeming qualities to, to the use of, of alcohol. Uh, and indeed, there's been follow-up, uh, there's a follow-up study that was released actually uh, a few months ago uh, that suggested, you know, uh, uh, if, if we had the ability to do it, um, you know, the, the healthcare community, the medical community, the epidemiologists, epidemiologists were suggesting that ideally you would you would make alcohol inaccessible to 20 to 40 year old men, because that was the group that was at highest risk of abuse and highest risk of getting into trouble from their alcohol use. Both of these substances, both of these drugs, alcohol and tobacco, um, have had profound negative effects on our society, but we've accepted that um, uh, regulation has been more effective than prohibition. Uh, and we've accepted uh, socially some of the social costs that come with their regulation um, as, as, uh, because they're so deeply interwoven into our social society. Cannabis, I think, unfortunately, because the stigma has so far preceded the science, has meant that we are in an environment where there's a lot of decisions around cannabis that are being informed by anecdote and reflex and, and old wives' tales, pardon the expression, than by real hard science. And part of the opportunity that we see here is um, with the uh, march toward federal regulation is deep investment in sound, solid research that's not just looking for the harms, but looking for the potential benefits and, uh, and ready investment to capitalize on the potential therapeutic benefits of cannabis. Because if cannabis, you know, if 93% if of the consumers we survey say that their use of cannabis has uh, uh, significantly or slightly improved their health outcomes, uh, those are those are numbers that we cannot ignore, nor can nor should we allow um, our concern about potential deleterious effects to some part of the population uh, impede the progress toward uh, significant investment in trying to understand how to harness the potentially profound therapeutic outcomes that cannabis can make possible. So, you know, I don't mean to suggest in saying all of that uh, that cannabis is purely safe. Clearly, there's some um, subsectors of consumers who uh, face both uh, psychological and physiological challenges of if they consume or overconsume. Uh, but I think it would be a grave mistake to copy and paste regulations from either alcohol, tobacco, to try and govern ca cannabis, uh, because there's there's something about the way cannabis interacts with human psychology and human physiology that seems to improve one's health outcomes. And I think um, at, at a time that so many people around the world, not, in, not just in the US, are, are seeking uh, non-habit-forming, non-addictive, uh, non-side-effect-inducing uh, uh, therapeutics, cannabis seems to check a lot of the box for um, applications that, that uh, are untapped and could have profound effect on improving human wellness. Yeah, absolutely. David, how would you judge the bill's chances of success in the Senate? So I, I think despite these improvements, it's still a bill that, um, you know, it was described as the gold standard by Senator Booker. Um, and I think what we have seen this Congress is 
Democrats putting out a bill that is their gold standard is not ultimately what gets passed through uh, a very tight margin, but having only you know, 50 votes. Um, they put out, uh, and I'll use the Inflation Reduction Act um, that, that just was signed into law as the, the most recent example. Um, that is a far cry from the original plan of Build Back Better um, that they had introduced in terms of a lot of the um, climate and healthcare provisions that they wanted to get accomplished. Um, so starting with the CAOA as the gold standard, at least in this political climate, makes me feel that it would have to be significantly changed scaled down, um, compromised on to actually get it to the president's desk. Uh, you know, I, I think the perception um, by the American public is Democrats have a majority in both uh, chambers of Congress right now. Um, having 50 votes um, with the vice president being the tie-breaking vote is, is a far cry from having a true majority. Um, most pieces of legislation in the Senate, unless they use um, you know, very specific, uh, you know, policy tools like reconciliation need 60 votes and, and getting 10 Republicans on board um, with something this sweeping and this comprehensive um, seems incredibly unlikely. Uh, that's not to mention that there has already been resistance um, to the idea of federal legalization within the Democratic Party. Um, Senator uh, John Tester from Montana is on record saying that he doesn't support full legalization, um, as is uh, Senator Gene Shaheen from New Hampshire. Um, and you know, having having even just one Democrat be a no vote on, on the CAOA, you know, greatly hurts its chances. Uh, I don't see a scenario where even if you look at the states um, that are that are traditionally red states that have uh, you know legal cannabis, whether medical adult use. I have a hard time coming up with 10 senators, even with from those states, who would vote yes on such a sweeping bill. Um, you know, you may have the support of someone like Senator Murkowski from Alaska, uh, who has been very outspoken on, on cannabis issues uh, because it's been the will of her voters. Um, you may have somebody like Senator Paul from a libertarian standpoint, um, you know, interested in some of the personal freedom aspects of cannabis use. Uh, but you know, looking at the size and scope of this bill, it just seems very unlikely that it, in its current form, um, would be able to get to the president's desk. Yeah. So I'm curious, David, maybe to just two kind of sub-questions under that. One, you know, it sounds like Democrats in particular have been really animated by the uh, first the Supreme Court decision around Roe v. Wade and then some of the wins that the, the Democratic caucus has had since. Um, you know, do, do you see the the shifting political climate, some of this building energy that certainly has been on the Democratic side, um, playing any role in, in um, the, the conversation around uh, cannabis, even if it's not specifically around this bill. And then two, if, if not this, does the fact that this gets rejected increase the interest in or likelihood of um, something more narrowly targeted, uh, safe banking, uh, getting getting through uh, in, in this coming cycle, yeah, and I'll start. Um, I'll start with the the first question, and that it could potentially build support. Um, you know, as we go into the elections for for the Democratic Party, uh, sure. But most of the conversations have centered around a idea that cannabis reform is going to happen in a lame duck Congress after the election has taken place. Uh, and I think this is largely because although this issue is incredibly, incredibly popular with the average American voter, you know, medical is polling at 91 percent um, in the latest Gallup poll. Uh, adult use is, is you know, kneeling that 70 percent um, threshold mark. But, you know, 
it is not an issue that has really gotten the attention of a lot of lawmakers on Capitol Hill. I'm certainly having the majority leader of the Senate lead and introduce a cannabis bill, I, I think is an ideological shift to where we, we previously have been been in other Congresses. Um, but really, it is a, a small group of members on Capitol Hill who really champion cannabis causes um, day in and day out, and has really made it one of the top issues for their voters in their district. Uh, there are so many other issues that I, I suspect that the Democratic Congress, as well as the administration, would like to act on um, in the very narrow window between now and Election Day. Uh, you know, including things like uh, revisiting um, student debt, looking at Medicare drug pricing, uh, you know, there are the that they see as bigger issues um, that, you know, maybe cannabis would win them, you know, a couple of thousand votes, but wouldn't get the hundred of thousand of votes that they perceive that some of these other issues may. Um, as far as the, the the second question in terms of whether this leads to something on a smaller scale, I think we're already seeing the results of that. Um, so at the end of July, the Senate had a hearing um, for the first time about changing the federal status of cannabis. Uh, it was called uh, decriminalizing um, cannabis at the federal level, um, steps we need to remediate the war on drugs. I may be paraphrasing that. Um, but throughout that hearing, a, a narrative sort of emerged that um, Small steps may not be um, the worst plan for, for cannabis reform, whether that's um, dealing with expungements at the federal level. Uh, at near the end of the hearing, say, thanking came up um, a few days after the hearing. Uh, Senator Booker said, you know, the, the gold standard quote, he's like, well, CAOA is the gold standard. Um, Perhaps we should be looking to, uh, and he used the phrase, safe banking plus. Um, the plus for him being elements of criminal justice reform. Um, maybe some veterans access issues, um, maybe provisions that deal with the SBA. But, you know, even having the chief bill sponsor acknowledge that, um, you know, maybe his bill is is aspirational um, and that he is looking for something that is more realistic to move forward. Um, I, I think that makes it more likely for the end of the year. Uh, you know, you look at the fact that the House has already included um, the safe banking language in their National Defense Authorization Act. Um, the Senate's expected to take up their version of the bill in the fall. Um, you look at the fact that um, both chambers have passed a very comparable cannabis research bill, um, you know, with just a few phrases being different that will need to be conferenced before the end of next Congress. Um, and you look at the support for, for some of these smaller, more incremental reforms, it seems far more likely um, from at least a prediction standpoint that a, a scaled down bill um, that maybe has elements of the CAOA, that has elements of safe banking, and then elements of some of these other proposals, maybe the more realistic pathway um, before a potential change in power um, pending the election results in November. Well, well um, David, as you remember, we hosted a uh, very long four-hour panel <laughs> on the CAOA back in November. Um, we had the pleasure of having you on for the FDA. So we basically covered all the topics um, that were in that session, except for one who um, I believe Safira Galoub was, um, we had the honor of her having moderating the session on international trade. So wanted to touch on that and how that plays into this um, this current bill that's out there. So John or David, you can jump in. <laughs> yeah, it, it, within um, within some of the tax sections, um, there there's provisions about fair trade, and I think the office has got a lot of uh, comments. Um, 
dealing with that some of the fair trade language within that bill may have an adverse impact on some of the state social equity programs. Um, we didn't really see a change in language um, in the new bill, but the office did publicly acknowledge that they received some of these comments. Um, and they, they said that, you know, these rules are fairly similar to what um, happens in terms of the regulation of malt beverages and wholesalers, um, and that to the extent that there would be any sort of fair trade practice um, violation or limitation, it would only apply if that limitation existed under state law. So they're giving a little bit of deference to the states on this. Um, that doesn't necessarily answer your question on international, um, but I think as we look to um, you know, Germany getting ready to, to potentially legalize adult use in the European Union, I suspect that many other um, member states of the EU are going to follow Germany's lead if they are successful. Uh, I think many folks in Europe are looking at Germany as sort of the, you know, the well-educated Colorado or California um, of the United States, um, you know, having the lessons learned from both the states, but also some other international marketplaces. Um, I, you know, don't don't see that there is going to be a lot of interest um, to import uh, Canadian product, except for perhaps by the Canadian companies themselves. Um, you know, I think uh, just from a marketing standpoint, you're going to see far more. Um, allusions to the state of California and the Emerald Triangle than you would for any Canadian cannabis. Um, but once we have, I think, serious competitors um, in the EU and then Central America and South America continues to develop cannabis programs uh, within their states, I think the international trade conversation becomes far different. But I don't know if we are quite there yet. I, I know um, the most recent cycle of the UN's um, meeting on narcotic drugs uh, really resulted in no, you know, no true policy changes for the global cannabis community. Um, there have been, uh, I think, a lot of efforts uh, with that body to change at least the international scheduling status or to get update to some of the um, ways member states interface with um, the treaties when it comes to cannabis. Um, but we haven't seen any real um, changes. We've seen a, a small recommendation a few years ago to move um, cannabis out of Schedule 4 internationally, um, which was the most restrictive schedule according to the treaties, but no real effort to make it um, widely commercially available. All right, John, you're on the spot. <laughs> what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the international question faces the same challenge as the domestic import-export or domestic trade one faces, which is, um, you know, are, are the very deeply invested uh, operators like in the East Coast markets or in California going to be wanting to import um, Mexican or Colombian or Zimbabwean or Malawian cannabis? Uh, when, when in the on the Pacific states, they're sitting on more inventory that they can sell domestically, and on in the eastern coast markets, uh, the the operators have invested a huge amounts of money to get operational, but haven't yet uh, recouped that investment. So um, I think the play, if it's permitted under federal law, will be to export American products into international markets. Um, that's something that we haven't seen a, a, a lot of uh, yet, and I think that's you know there's going to be a lot of interest in particularly strong branded uh, cannabis from famous American uh, markets. Uh, the Emerald Triangle, I think, is going to do really well in, in uh, places in Europe with with savvy cannabis consumers, uh, but the logistics of that are going to be pretty complicated. Um, 
Uh, we've seen some interstate commerce already begin in places like, uh, you know, the, 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 actually we're speaking to somebody who's just done the first export of cannabis from Malta into Germany. So it's starting, uh, but we are a pretty long way away from the European market looking anywhere close to the size, scale, and sophistication that we see in North America. The quantities being imported are going to be pretty small, um, and we certainly would not be advising any American producers to think they're going to build their fortunes uh, selling into Europe over the, over the immediate term. Um, those markets are still profoundly immature. The regulations are going to be pretty murky for a while, and they're going to be phenomenally competitive because... Uh, we know that producers in Latin America, in Canada, and in uh, in parts of Asia and in Southern Africa are all planning on exporting to those markets. So it's a pretty crowded space uh, uh, with pretty limited demand. And I think it's going to be several more years before uh, those, those markets have the capacity to absorb the volume of product that's being produced to target them. Nice. Well, um, David, any any kind of predictions or look into your crystal ball about thoughts about federal cannabis policy in the next year or two? Yeah. And so I, I think every election cycle we have changes the cannabis narrative in the right direction. Um, looking at this fall, we're going to have Maryland, um, Missouri, Arkansas, North and South Dakota, all voting on adult use cannabis. Um, well, that may not immediately change their elected officials' position, um, having a new constituency uh, that is voicing you know, concerns of the industry and voicing concerns of the consumer um, has been traditionally helpful. You look at someone like Senator Kevin Kramer um, from North Dakota, you know, he was very anti-cannabis um, before his state originally voted for medical, um, then ultimately joined on safe banking, um, was vocal on some appropriations amendments, and you know, basically said, this was the will of my voters. I don't necessarily support it, um, but you know, this is what my state has moved forward with. So I think you see that shift, um, particularly with some Republican members. Um, and I think the, you know, the, the race in Missouri is particularly notable. Um, you know, Senator Blunt, who is on his way out retiring, um, he's a co-sponsor of Safe Banking. He's been pretty vocal about the growth of that industry in that state. So it should be interesting to see if his replacement um, picks up that mantle for, for a growing industry in that state. So I, I think any time that we have, um, you know, initiatives on an election cycle, uh, it's impactful. And then, you know, even more so for on the specific candidate level, um, you look to somebody like John Fetterman in Pennsylvania, who has really taken the issue of cannabis legalization um, in full stride. He has made it part of his campaign platform. He has fundraised off of it. Um, he has sold, uh, you know, 420 stickers, um, Fetterman for Pottsylvania. Um, it, and, you know, it, it has done very well for him in that state, um, at least, you know, looking at the most recent polling numbers. So it is becoming an issue that candidates aren't afraid to embrace. I think for a long time, uh, you looked at electoral politics and, and members were very reluctant to embrace something like cannabis on the campaign trail um, because they were worried of the critiques they would get um, from their opponents. I, I think that is dissipating a considerable bit. Um, you are seeing less of the traditional reefer madness arguments. Um, and instead, you're seeing, you know, arguments about um, potency and access by children um, instead of just, you know, outright um, cannabis is bad. Uh, so even that, that evolution where 
you have opponents thinking about very specific policy areas instead of you know, completely uh, ignoring the issue altogether. Um, good evolution. As far as predictions, um, you know, I think I think something does get done this year. Um, there is momentum from the CAOA. There's momentum behind safe banking. Uh, as I mentioned, both chambers have passed nearly identical research bills. Uh, and then uh, a final note, um, in January, uh, on January 1, the current directive uh, for the, the Veterans Administration that says that they can talk about cannabis with their patients, um, but not uh, necessarily fill out the recommendation papers, um, that's going to be expiring at the end of um, next year. And, you know, so that tees up sort of a conversation that at the very least that directive needs to be revisited. Um, you know, it may be issued uh, exactly the same as it currently is right now. Um, but that, and then you look at the 2023 farm bill, um, hemp is certainly going to come up in conversations in early next year and early spring uh, in terms of what we should be doing in terms of bolstering the hemp industry. Um, so those are all very clearly identifiable metrics where we're going to have some sort of legislative vehicle that touches on cannabis or hemp. Uh, and it's just a question of what Congress wants to do with this. Well, all good things. John, what do you think? Yeah, there's only one point I want to kind of uh, pick up on on what David has just said, which I think is, I actually pulled up the map to make sure I was looking at this correctly. So the the polling for Maryland looks pretty good. I think, you know, there's been very, very strong support for uh, for for cannabis in Maryland, particularly the closer you get to Washington D.C., um, and so that's going to completely change the regulated land, the landscape for regulated cannabis. Given uh, that you'll have D.C. and uh, Maryland and Virginia uh, surrounding D.C. as two legal jurisdictions. Uh, two, if Fetterman were to win, and um, it looks like he's a couple of points ahead of Dr. Oz in, in their uh, race for for governorship. Um, and if he pushes legalization in Pennsylvania through the legislature rather than uh, uh, trying to do this, uh, I, I don't actually think they've got the ability to do this as a ballot initiative, um, then it would mean, you know, potentially within the next 18 months, you might be able to drive from northern Maine to southern Virginia without having passing through a state where cannabis is not legal. That's you're driving through the most densely, densely populated part of the American uh, of the American uh, landscape. Um, and and I think the implications of that, the idea that you can you can drive for a full day through uh, through um, places where you know less than a year prior um, they'd have thrown the book of you book at you for having cannabis on you, um, is both illustrative of how quickly this is changing, and and two the inevitability of this being a question of when not if. Um, so. Somebody who was a longtime Virginian, the thought of being able to do that kind of road trip kind of is, is kind of mind blowing, uh, but we seem to be uh, lurching toward them doing so at pace. Amazing. Well, David, before we wrap, we give our guests the opportunity to give a shout out to someone in the industry. So the floor is yours. Um, no one's specific, but um, certainly all of the staffers on Capitol Hill who are working on cannabis uh, issues. Um, it is no one's primary portfolio. Um, know that they all handle a lot, um, you know, criminal justice 
infrastructure, inflation, a um, whole lot of issues. And so for the staff that is willing to give time on this issue um, and to the drafters of the CAOA, um, hats off to you. We appreciate the work that you do um, and we love to work with you on cannabis policy. Amazing. Well, thank you guys both so much for your time. Thank you to our listeners. And again, please be sure to like, subscribe, hit the notification bell and share this episode. I am your host, Heather Wickline, and we will see you next time. New Frontier Data provides this podcast for entertainment purposes only. Nothing stated in this podcast should be taken as legal or financial advice. Reference to any specific product or entity does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by the company. The views expressed by guests are their own and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. Views and opinions expressed by New Frontier Data employees are those of the employees and do not necessarily reflect the view of the company or any of its officials. If you have any questions about this disclaimer, please contact our legal department.